This podcast is sponsored by the Davenant Institute. Spring term courses begin April 11th. Find out more at davenantinstitute.org and hear more at the conclusion of this podcast. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. We see being a conservative Christian in the public square is increasingly problematic. Being a trans person in the public square is increasingly an asset in certain quarters. Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I am Jonathan Master, joined as always by my good friend and co-host, James Dolezal. James, how are you today? Doing well, Jonathan. Good to be here. Good. It's earlier for you than it is for me and for our guests, but you seem like you're up for it today. I have my coffee when we uh, when we record in different time zones. You know, I I know I'm I'm outnumbered by the East Coasters now, so I've I've got to make do. Well, we are excited to uh, be joined today by another good friend, someone who's appeared on this podcast before, and someone from whom we have learned a great deal and whom we esteem very highly. Dr. Carl Truman, who is Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College. And today, Carl's come to talk to us about his new book entitled Strange New World, How Thinkers and Activists Redefined Identity and Sparked the Sexual Revolution. Carl, thanks for joining us today. It's great to be with you guys. Good to see you again. It's great to see you too. Now, now Carl, I want to begin by asking how you would distinguish this book from your earlier, bigger one. This is sort of a I gather a, an abridged version in many respects from the book that that you've appeared on this program to talk about in the past. And uh, so can you distinguish between those two other than the fact that this one's a little bit shorter than the other one? Yeah, that's certainly correct. I mean, the origin of the book was Ryan Anderson at the Ethics and Public Policy Center when he read the big book, uh, dropped me a note and said, love your book, but there's a, there's a problem. I said, what's the problem? He said, nobody's going to read it. It's too long. Uh, and he wanted a, something short that he could give to DC staffers, kind of thing that they would read while right. commuting to work in the morning. I also had in mind that I wanted to do something that would be useful to, to churches, for Sunday schools, things like that, discussion groups, something that would be more accessible than the, the larger book. So I'd already got in my mind the idea of a, of a shorter, more concise version. So on one level, yeah, it's a, it's a summary of the larger book. I had to do the larger book first to establish the argument in terms of footnotes, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it also goes beyond the book in, in a number of ways as well. Obviously, we had the summer of 2020 uh, between me completing the, the original manuscript and then writing this shorter book. So there's material in there on, for example, the collapse of uh, traditional institutions, particularly the family, religious institutions, and the nation state. There's also some more material touching on uh, the impact of technology on identity. So it's, I would say it's it's probably 70% summary of the original book, 30% new material. And even where I'm, I'm presenting a summary of the original book, I'm trying to bring in different material to do that. So bit more on Oscar Wilde, for example. I introduced Mary Wollstonecraft, both of whom I think are significant representatives of, of, of movements that I'm trying to 
to get a handle on the book. So it's, in other words, uh, if you bought the big book, you should still buy the little book and boost my royalties. Yeah, I, well, I, I, I knew that I knew that you'd say that. I'm sure uh, uh, Mrs. Truman is in the background uh, giving you a thumbs up. The big book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. For those listeners unfamiliar with that, you can go back in the archives. And, and uh, we had a, a two-part interview, a long interview with Carl about that book, which I still hear people talking about all the time. I think it's provoked a tremendous amount of discussion, but, um, but we want to tell people about this one as well. So, Carl, what was it in the summer of 2020? I just want to follow up on one thing you said. What was it in the summer of 2020 that crystallized some of the things that you were thinking about in, in the big book that you've now added to this one? Yeah, a couple of things of interest. Obviously, there were the, the protests and, and sometime riots associated with the death of George Floyd, uh, which were not simply a national phenomenon, but were an international phenomenon. And that fascinated me because you have there a situation uh, in Britain where at the same time as the George Floyd protests were going on, uh, we also had a, a tremendous crackdown on uh, the protesters, the umbrella protesters in Hong Kong. And as a British person, it interested me that there was very little activity on the streets of Britain relative to what was going on in Hong Kong. It didn't capture the imagination of the British people in a way that the, the protests surrounding George Floyd uh, did provoke a reaction on the streets of Britain. And that got me thinking, why is it that a country that was a British colony until 1997, I watched the handing over of Hong Kong to the Chinese on the TV live in 1997. It's during my adult lifehood, that's a lifetime that has taken place. Why was it that something as recent as that didn't touch the, the British psyche in the way that the death of a, a black guy in Minneapolis gripped the national imagination? And that got me thinking about how people construct their narratives of identity today. And there was another phrase that I could have in the original book, I wrestled with the, the, the phrase, I'm a woman trapped in a man's body. How does that become plausible? I was also struck by another phrase that emerged in the last decade, that he pledged allegiance to ISIS online. And this was often used about kids in London uh, in the mid part of the last decade who uh, came from good homes. They, these were not alienated kids growing up in the hood. These were kids from good homes raise the question of why is it that something online that to me has no reality at all is yet more real to them than the actual communities in which they live. So the whole issue of national narrative and the issue of technology and how technology shapes uh, our imagination uh, became more of an issue for me, I guess, in 2020 than it had been in the writing of the original book. So it's really a set of issues that, that crystallized around those questions. 1619 Project is another good example. That was only just emerging then. But I've said to students numerous times over the last year, whichever side you take in the 1619 Project, the interesting thing is that it exists at all because its existence indicates that the American nation, the United States of America, is undergoing a crisis of uh, creation myth, for want of a better term. Was the nation created in 1776 or in, in 1619? How you answer that question is absolutely determinative of, of how you think of yourself as an American, what you think America is. 
the very fact that there's a lively public debate about that is a, a worrying sign, I think, in terms of the coherence of the national narrative. So all of these things were starting to bubble to the surface. Uh, you know, cynically, I couldn't have asked for a better summer for launching my first book in 2020. Yeah. Conspiracy theorists you know, out there may, may want to connect some dots there. But it also raised a whole host of other questions. And I realized, man, the narrative I've told in the big book has to have a, a broader compass and has more implications than I ever imagined it had. Carl, I want to step. You brought up technology, and I know that that's become you, you've sort of given some attention to that theme. I wonder if we could dial back just a little bit for readers who haven't read *Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self*. Um, maybe I could put it like this: Modernity didn't invent selfhood. Um, persons have been selves since creation. Um, what is maybe if we could sort of map out what is the distinction between a, a pre-modern, a biblical, or even just Western pre-modern notion of the self versus a a mod, well when I say modern maybe I think Descartes till now um, yeah uh, Rousseau especially I guess factors in it but what is that distinction uh, that is sort of decisive in this Yeah I mean rather simplistically but in but as as with a lot of simplistic things I think it sort of captures a lot of the truth I think what what characterizes the modern self as opposed to the pre-modern self is the authority we grant to our inner feelings to our psychological states. And I might then reinforce that by saying, and that is uh, reinforced or uh, intensified by an increasing emphasis upon this world being all that there is. It's interesting if you read the, the essays of Montaigne, for example, uh, that I don't actually allude to in either book, but, but in Montaigne's essays, you have an attempt there to, to think of of life in purely imminent terms, to think of the self in purely imminent terms. And it's, it's, that's part of what it is to be the modern self, I think, that we, we prioritize our inner feelings, we bump up against external authority that we feel is, is restricting that in some way, and we imagine the world as being all that there is. And those three things, I think, make our world very different. If you go back to ancient Greece, yes, people clearly have an understanding of their, their inner lives. Read Augustine's Confessions. He has an acute uh, and, and very profound understanding of his inner life. But he understands that inner life as embedded in, in a cosmos, which is itself embedded in God. And he as an individual can only find his ultimate significance, his, 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 his way of flourishing, if you like, by looking outward to God and not simply moving inwards. We're very different. We tend to think that that which is outside of us needs to be made to serve that which is in us. There's that kind of reversal that takes place. I wonder, you brought up Montaigne and you don't mention him in the book, but I, it's, I wonder what the relationship between his skepticism is, you know, what can man know? Uh, and his, I guess it's up to me, um, kind of, which, you know, which came first, uh, is it his skepticism that leads him inward, uh, or does that, does the inward cause him to be skeptical about outside authorities or realities? It's a, it's a bit of a chicken and egg and I'm no Montaigne expert to be able to comment on that. But I think what you've got in the, in the 16th set from the 16th century onwards is a general crumbling of confidence in external authority. You know, I don't want to play the, 
the Brad Gregory card and say, well, it's all coming, you know, the Reformation, really bad thing. And that's where the mess all starts. But the Reformation is clearly part of a story whereby old certainties start to disappear. I would, and again, I would throw technology into that as well. I would say what technology does is technology changes the world in a way that one feels one can't depend upon externals. And you get this move in the in the 16th, 17th century towards a focus on epistemology, which is how we know stuff, entirely understandable as a move with the crumbling of external authority, I think, but but ultimately a rather unfortunate move because the gravitational pull, I think, of epistemology is, is inwards. Uh, is Montaigne's epistemological skepticism uh, connected to his uh, his immanentism and whatever. Absolutely, I think, absolutely in that case. Carl, I have actually two follow-up questions. One is uh, based on something you recently wrote in an article that kind of deals with this relationship between technology and external stuff. So, so, so let, me, let me read this to you and then, and then maybe you can, you can unpack it or comment on it. Technology also reinforces the focus on the individual, which you've just been, been emphasizing, and on individual satisfactions all of these things contribute to and reinforce a cultural imagination that tilts towards seeing the world simply as stuff, the future as something we can make in whatever way we desire, and nature not so much as fixed reality as something that is to be overcome and remade through technical mastery. How does that relate to the fact that you've talked about this, this crumbling um, understanding of authority external to oneself? So it, it, se- it, seems, um, it seems like there's a tension there. On the one hand, Things external to me don't don't matter. I don't have to conform to them. On the other hand, stuff is all that matters, and my technical mastery of stuff is is what I'm after. Yeah, I mean that's a good question. Couple of comments. I think one, what you just quoted. When you think about it, it's it's clearly the case that the rise of technology has has allowed us to imagine ourselves as having much more mastery over the world than before. Had you been born in the Middle Ages? you would have been entirely dependent upon the rhythm of seasons for the rhythm of your work life, your survival, et cetera, et cetera. Now, none of us on this podcast have jobs that are directly dependent upon the seasons, maybe somewhere way down the line on the food chain. The seasons have a small marginal effect on us. But other than the occasional snow day, I'm not affected by by the seasons. And I think that encourages us to think of of ourselves as being in control. And this is one reason why when nature bites back, when we find ourselves in a situation where we don't have control, a, a kind of blind panic seem, tends to set in. So look at the response to COVID. The initial response to COVID is, we just need to close everything down. We have no idea what's going on. We have no control. So we just close ourselves down. Um, in terms of the point you make moving on from that, that, well, stuff is all that there is, and and technology is a certain authority, I suppose, uh, on that front. Uh, I think that's a good point, and and I suppose I would refine my comment by saying what technology does is it it shatters or it undermines traditional forms of authority and continues to do so, that it's not a case that, okay, technology, you know, the printing press undermines the way medieval Europe did things, changes things completely. That's true. But what we have now in our technological world is it's a new printing press every couple of days, it seems. There is a constant undermining 
of external things. So maybe you, I could reframe what I'd said there or, or reformulate it and say, it's inimical to any form of, of stable authority, external authority. Yeah. What it does is it, it places great authority in things that are constantly changing at the right. same time as colonizing our minds with this idea that somehow we are sovereign, somehow we can overcome our human nature. We have transhumanism. We can overcome death. We have this idea that we're going to be able to live forever at some particular point in time if only we can make the technological breakthroughs. Well, and that shifting authority, um, it, it, it leads to tremendous anxiety for people because, you know, we don't know tomorrow uh, what authority we're going to have to uh, submit to. So just to follow up, you know, you're, you're, you're the big book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, began with that arresting quote, I'm a was it a man trapped in the body of a woman, or I forget whether it was the other way around. But in any case, the, one of the one of the, uh, the the things that made that so powerful, I think, was that, that everyone's heard that we've we've all heard that, we've all seen it, and and tried to come to grips with it. And you analyzed it so well. So in this book, as you deal with technology and deal with some of these shifts that you've described, um, you, you address some of these things. But what are the kind of on the ground? areas where this confronts us. So we've been talking about the, the realm of ideas and perhaps some of our listeners are saying, well, you know, that that's interesting, but where does this confront families or, or churchgoers? What, 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 are the, what are the real points of friction here? Obviously, the, the, the set of issues surrounding LGBTQ issues continues to be an increasing issue for many people. As I've gone around the country speaking about the big book, I can't recall a single place I've spoken where somebody hasn't come up to speak to me afterwards and say, either this is my issue or it's my, my daughter's issue or my son-in-law's issue. I think the LGB sexual identity stuff increasingly touches just about everybody. So I think that you know, the original question remains a rubber hits the road kind of question. Secondly, this is not a question, but I think this is something I've become increasingly convinced of, is, is the technology issue. Uh, I think that parents fool themselves if they think that homeschooling their kids uh, is, is going to keep their kids somehow immunized to this stuff, or sending their kids to a Christian liberal arts college is going to keep their kids immunized to this stuff. Two problems there. One, kids are going to have to confront it at some point because it is so pervasive in our world now. They're going to run up against this. And secondly, that notion that, that, that education is the most important thing in a kid's life, I think technology has, has shattered that. Uh, and I would say one of the implications of, of, of my book is this. You can homeschool your kids all you want, but if you give them a smartphone, the game's over. Game's over at that point. One of the things that is emerging, uh, the, the evidence is anecdotal at the moment, but I think it's more and more compelling, and it's going to cease to be anecdotal in the very near future, is that the most important and authoritative people in young people's lives are not parents, they're not teachers, they're not the politicians. The most influential people are those who make TikTok videos and YouTube videos and the like. And if you give your kids unfettered access to that you can homeschool all you want and it's not going to amount to hill of beans so i would say the burden of it's not maybe an explicit burden in this book but i think it's an implication of the book is we need to be thinking as christians much more broadly 
about the broad education of our children. Uh, I've become less and less enamored over the last few years. I was never entirely convinced by it because of, it was typically used in the singular, and I didn't think it existed in the singular. Uh, the term Christian worldview, and I always used to press back it against it and say, hey, there is no Christian worldview. There are Christian worldviews. You know, if you believe Jesus is, is actually physically present in the sacrament, that's a pretty important aspect of your worldview, one that I don't share you know, with my Lutheran brothers and sisters. I think worldview tends to focus us on ideas rather than on the things that shape our intuitions. And I don't want to go down a sort of vague route of it's all about intuition. But I think the, the things we use, the way we relate to the world, shapes how we imagine the world to be. And we have to pay attention to that, I think, as Christians, as we're educating our children and educating our people in church. And, and you're not just talking there about the smartphone that gives, you know, a teenager access to pornography or something like that, although that's, a, of course, a huge problem. But you're also saying it, 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 it inculcates a whole mindset, a way of understanding reality and how we fit in reality, even if they're not accessing material that is, you know, morally objectionable on the surface. It changes their understanding of how individuals fit in the world and, and how they're to see themselves. You mentioned anxiety. You know, think about when, you, when, when the three of us were teenagers. When I was at high school, grammar school, there were seven or eight guys that I hung around with whose approval I needed. And I saw them every day. I could read their body language. The, the relationships were relatively transparent to the extent that any teenage relationship can be transparent. I just needed the approval of seven or eight guys. If you're on social media now with all of your followers, TikTok, Twitter followers, whatever, you could have hundreds and hundreds of faceless people upon whose acceptance you depend for your self-image. And that's damaging to kids. That's really damaging to kids. I was talking to a girl recently at the college who got a friend who was a pretty talented young artist and started a little web page to, to put up some of her artwork and just had you know, the, the hashtag wielding mob descend upon her. She doesn't do art anymore. It's destroyed the pleasure she took in art. That's a small example, but I'd say, no, pornography is the obvious problem, but it's far from the most deadly, I would say. There are ways we can sort of deal with pornography. How do you deal with rampant Twitter followers? How do you deal with Facebook likes? How do you deal with these things that I think are doing tremendous damage to to young people, both in how they understand friendships to operate and how they, how they find their, their, their sense of worth, their sense of value, their self-respect. Carl, I wonder if this goes to, maybe I'll just kind of tie this in a little bit to the need for the modern self to not just, you know, be itself or live out its, uh, you know, inner desires sort of uninhibited, but also to be affirmed in it. It's not, I think a lot of us in sort of conservative circles thought in phase one of all of the sort of recent goings on that what, what was being asked for was just let me be, but that really wasn't it. It was the, the modern self wants more than just to be left to itself. Yeah, I mean, you're pointing there to, to Hegel's idea, really, of recognition, that, that, right. that ourselves, we, we're only truly ourselves when somebody else ascribes value to us. I, 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 lecture, I give a lecture at Grove, my humanities course each year, when I, when, which, which is entitled, you know, why do all teenagers look the same? 
you know, you talk to a teenager and, oh, my clothes are an expression of my inner me and my uniqueness, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and all the girls turn up to my classes with torn jeans, you know. So why are you wearing torn jeans if that's a unique expression of who you are? And that's a, that's a tough one to get to because there you're really, you're really looking at the dialogical nature of self. But, yeah, society teaches us, if you like. The will of society is to teach us that we are who we are inside. But then society also determines the range of options by which we can understand that which is inside us. I, I deal with this a, a little bit in the book. But there, I think, again, social media plays a role because what you have is certain identities gain traction for whatever reason in our culture uh, and others lose traction. We're living at such a point at the moment. LGBTQ stuff, particularly T stuff, has huge traction at the moment. Traditional religion, traditional Christianity, for various reasons, does not. So we see being a conservative Christian in the public square is increasingly problematic. Uh, being a trans person in the public square is increasingly an asset in certain quarters. So you're pointing to something uh, very important, James, this need for recognition. And again, how, society, how that is negotiated is you cannot reduce that to a single thing. It's, it's a whole host of factors playing in, into it. Carl, I've just gotten the signal that um, our time is up and I, I wish it weren't. I feel like we're just getting started, but but thanks for joining us today. I mean, we would commend this book as we commended the other. In fact, in fact, uh, I, I read through this one um, in preparation for, for the conversations today and, and found that to add things that I hadn't you know, picked up on in, in the earlier book. So uh, thanks for joining us today and, and thank you for, for all your, your work on, on behalf of this project. It's always a pleasure to be with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Well, James, I, I, I meant what I said, and I think you and I were on exactly the same page. We were, we were just sort of getting warmed up. We, we uh, always enjoy our time with Carl, but this is a particularly rich subject. So uh, we couldn't get into everything, but, but I hope it whetted the appetites of our listeners to, to pick up this book, to distribute it. It'd be great for use in small group uh, book studies. There are questions at the end of each chapter, so really highly commend it. Well, and, and readers who want to get a little more in depth with it uh, or listeners should just sort of go back and find our two-part interview with him on the first book. But uh, to the point of this book, I mean, he's right. Ryan Anderson is right that um, there are just so many people who aren't going to take up the bigger book. I think some people who take up this book, though, are, are going to want to go back to the bigger one afterward. I, I, yep. I think so. But it's uh, but he's right. This is the kind of thing that people in our churches are asking about, they want to think through, they may have been aware of Carl's previous book and thought, well, one day, but what I guess I want to say is, well, one day's here and it's in a much trimmer paperback uh, edition. Yeah. Um, and so I, I do hope a lot of people pick this up and just to give us our bearings, because how many of us have, have you know, woken up in, in the last couple of years and thought, what in the world is going on? And I think this is this is a text that really analyzes and gets at the roots of it. Again, the prescriptive side is something that as Christians, we have resources for that. The diagnostic side, what Carl's really excellent at uh, as an historian, is something that is desperately needed. And I think that he, I think that he answers the, uh, the need of the hour. Well, I agree. And uh, for listeners who might be interested in winning a copy of this book, you can go to placefortruth.org, click on the Theology on the Go link. And there will be a, a spot there for you to type in your information, and, and we'll have a few of these to give away um, to, to listeners. 
we'd recommend that you buy it if you're not able to if you if you don't win a copy go buy a copy it, it's uh it's a, it's a short book it's accessible i think i think it will whet your appetite for for something more so in any case that that um, opportunity will be available placefortruth.org theology on the go link um as always we're grateful to hear from our listeners feedback and criticism and questions. And, and so please communicate with us if you can, if you can give us a, a rating, if you're listening on Apple podcasts, that helps us. And if you know anyone who might uh, appreciate theology on the go, please pass the word along to them. If you're able to give, you can do that on alliancenet.org. There's a donate button and placefortruth.org also has a donate button as well. And thank you as always for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. The Davenant Institute retrieves the wisdom of classical Protestantism to renew and build up the contemporary church. Through publications, events, and courses, they equip laypeople, pastors, scholars, and Christian educators by connecting them with the theological, ethical, and cultural riches of Protestants' past. Through their online program, Davenant Hall, and their residential study center, Davenant House, they are reimagining theological education, providing two affordable graduate-level degree programs in classical Protestantism. They also welcome anyone taking one-off courses in theology, church history, philosophy, and more. Online classes are taught by expert scholars in two-hour weekly Zoom sessions over 10 weeks from just $149 per class. Next term's courses include the Reformation in the Modern World, Knowing and Naming the Holy Trinity, Discovering J.R.R. Tolkien, and many more. Spring term courses begin April 11th and registration ends March 31st. Find out more at DavenantInstitute.org. That's D-A-V-E-N-A-N-T, DavenantInstitute.org. And on Facebook and Twitter.